All right, we're going to continue our study on divorce and remarriage. And uh, uh, given the context that we've now given, the hermeneutic that we've given, I wanted to kind of just go into uh, specifically the texts that are in dispute. That is Matthew uh, 5 and uh, 19, as well as then 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll do next week. Uh, This week, we're going to do Matthew. And so today, we're going to be talking really about the interpretation of Matthew and what the passage and all the other things that we've said about the absolute nature of Christ's prohibition toward uh, divorce and remarriage in terms of what that limits us to and what we can decide in our options for uh, what porneia might mean, the, the exception clause. So before we do all that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, there's so much information to deal with tonight. I pray that uh, I have put this in an organized manner or that you would organize it in my own thoughts so as to explain it well. Uh, I pray that any deficiencies in my communication uh, might be shored up by your opening the eyes of your people to see the truth, to understand the facts, and to understand the right way in uh, interpreting these difficult passages. We just thank you, Lord, for your word. We know that you've spoken clearly, and it's a matter of us just uh, interpreting it in a way that makes sense, uh, that follows the logic of language and doesn't go against it. I I pray that you leave your people open in their teachableness to your word. Let us approach you in humility now as we seek to understand these things and glorify your name and the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, the first passage we're going to talk about, of course, is Matthew chapter 5, and we'll go ahead and read it. It's the shorter of the two passages, of course, and, um, and uh, Matthew 5, of course, is in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is kind of showing the difference between the Pharisaical righteousness and the type of righteousness required by his people. Of course, the Pharisees think adultery is wrong, and Jesus is trying to point out, well, there are different ways in which you commit adultery. And one is you you desire some other woman, you look upon her and you'd rather have her uh, than your wife, or maybe you would look upon her and she is the wife of someone else, and you commit adultery in that way. But there's another way you commit adultery, and it's actually going to be through divorce and remarriage. And so he starts in uh, verse 51. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, that is the typical interpretation of porneia, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So obviously the key uh, term here is porneia. What does porneia mean? Because there was no exception given in Mark. The original statements of Jesus are absolute. As we went through in the first lesson, they're absolute. Um, or the second lesson, they're absolute. The uh, There's no exception in Luke. That's also absolute. And there's no exception in Paul. And so really, Matthew's the only exception clause that you have in Jesus' statement. Matthew was written, of course, to the Jewish Christian community, and uh, it's in a context where there's a, there's a conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Jews are not accepting Gentile Christians as full Christians. They're not eating with them. They're kind of considering them still as enemies. They, don't, they, don't, they kind of shun them when they're in need. All that sort of thing is going on. And, uh, and they're being, the Gentiles are being mistreated. There's a lot of rivalry going on. And so there's different issues that are coming up. One of them is perhaps a Gentile issue, and we'll talk about that today. But of course, um, that means that what Matthew includes here is likely meant to be understood by a Jewish community. Matthew is very, very uh, saturated in Jewish ideology. Uh, It's very much saturated in understanding the Old Testament a lot, in uh, rabbinic interpretation of the Old Testament. There's midrash that goes on in Matthew that doesn't necessarily go on in like Mark and Luke, who are written uh, specifically to more uh, Greek uh, Gentile audiences. And so understanding that background, I think, is important. So I'm going to read to you a couple commentaries about their uh, understanding. And I'm going to read to you commentaries that actually don't agree with me 
about their conclusions, but they have to agree about what it sounds like Jesus is saying. And so this is from Craig Keener's commentary, who you know wants to take a right turn after saying this and, and try to get to uh, something different. But I want you to notice, this is what he says. In Jesus' teaching, the man who betrays his spouse by divorce is no less unfaithful to his marriage than the adulterer or lustful person and presumably warrants the same punishment prescribed by the, by the preceding passage, damnation. In principle, remarriage is adulterous because God rejects the validity of divorce. Employing the same teaching technique of rhetorical overstatement, now this is where I disagree with Keener and he tries to get away from it, that pervades the context, Jesus declares that God does not accept divorce Hence, a divorced woman remains married to her first husband, and her remarriage is adulterous. Precisely because the very term for legal divorce meant freedom to remarry, everyone understood that a woman without a valid certificate of divorce was not free to remarry. Jesus declares that if God does not accept the divorce as valid, remarriage is adulterous. Adultery meant unfaithfulness to one's spouse, and remarriage is adulterous here precisely because in God's sight, the original couple remains married. Now, that seems, except for the things he's putting in there because he's later going to try to get out of it, it seems very clear. Um, other scholars are going to say uh, Moises Silva actually redid the, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis, and, um, and he makes uh, numerous statements that I think are good in the passage or, or on, the, on the text uh, if you want to look in that work. But um, he, he basically says this, Jesus' Jesus's teaching appears to be that divorce is inconsistent with obedience to God's will. Seems pretty clear. Um, so what is it then that Matthew is saying when he's talking about uh, the exception clause? What is this exception clause? Well, here are some guidelines. Whatever the exception clause means, whatever pornea means, whatever that is, let's say we don't know what it is at all. It's ambiguous because it can mean, I'm going to argue, it can mean uh, one of three things mainly. It's ambiguous. Whatever it means, it cannot contradict the absoluteness of Jesus' statement in Mark, Luke, and the Pauline teaching that you find in 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 7. Uh, whatever it means, it cannot then be going against the idea that what God has joined together cannot be put asunder. It cannot be divorced. Uh, it is uh, immoral in the eyes of God to divorce what he has put together as one flesh. So that limits our options automatically. But let's first pursue the most common one that people think pornea means. Um, the most common meaning of pornea that usually assigned to it by people is adultery. They usually think pornea means adultery. And so if the woman commits adultery or the man commits adultery, um, it, that's the exception clause. So if, if you get divorced for any other reason but adultery and there's another remarriage, then that is the adultery. Now, there are numerous issues to this. I want to I kind of go through, and uh, I'm, I'm going to read this from Davies and Allison. I'm going to give you their reasons for accepting adultery. They reluctantly adopt the idea of adultery, even though they say they, they're not really that sure. But they, they do accept the adultery idea. Um, here the, here's their, their reasoning for, for it. Um, Uh, I'm not going to go through it. They're, they're trying to like go against the other one. I'm not, not going to mention that right now. Uh, the phrase is likely connected to Deuteronomy 24.1. And in that passage, the, uh, the view of Shammai, the rabbi Shammai, uh, is that the term refers to adultery. Hence, it might be that the Christian view is the same as the view of Shammai, except that it might only be for divorce and, and may not be for remarriage. They're, they're pretty clear in saying this, Davies and Allison in their commentary, 
they they want to say that well they're not actually sure if it includes remarriage it, it definitely includes divorce but maybe not remarriage um but their idea is that that well maybe the christian idea is simply accepting the version of shemai and that that's that's uh it's just the christianized version of saying yeah you can get a divorce for adultery problem with this is it doesn't explain the reaction of the pharisees or the disciples and it would end up contradicting what Jesus said, that no one is actually able to divorce because they're no longer uh, two flesh, but one. Um, and because it contradicts that, and because it would also contradict the clear teaching otherwise, I, I don't think that works. Um, but especially the idea that the Pharisees are shocked by it. Because the Pharisees actually, in the day of Jesus, are of the school of Shammai. That's very clear. Uh, the school of Shammai tends to be more combative. In fact, they're the ones who are so combative, they actually it, they lead everyone into the Jewish revolt uh, in the late 60s. And, and because of the destruction of Jerusalem, people from that point on change. And so, so they adopt more of the, the Hillel school, uh, which is more pacifist. But they wouldn't, either way, whether they're of Hillel or Shammai or, or you don't want to make those sharp distinctions, they wouldn't have been shocked by the idea. It would have been familiar. The more conservative people within Jerusalem, not the most conservative, those would have been the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essene community, but the, uh, the Qumran community. But, um, but they wouldn't have been shocked in Jerusalem. They would have been the more conservative people and that would have been accepted. Uh, they wouldn't have responded to Jesus in the way that they did. The reason why they respond to him by saying, hey, Moses said we could get a divorce is because clearly Jesus is saying you can't. That's the entire point. And so that, that is, this reason for taking it as adultery doesn't really hold water. Um, the second reason they give is that adultery is a well-attested meaning for pornea. Now, here's the problem. Actually, in the New Testament, it isn't. Uh, pornea appears, uh, I believe, 26 times. Uh, you have pornua, pornuo appear different times. Pornos, porne, all these different words uh, of this, this word group appear in the New Testament. The only time it possibly refers to adultery, it probably refers to adultery, but more of an, a prophetic, ironic sense, is in Revelation 2 when it's talking about Jezebel and uh, it calls her someone. It calls her Jezebel and says that she's committing fornication. That is pornea, uh, which I think is probably talking about prostitution. So I actually think it means prostitution there. But it does say that those who enter into prostitution with her, fornication with her, pornea with her, are committing adultery with her. And so there, you can see that the adultery is uh, pornea. Now, I think there are reasons for that other than saying that pornea means adultery, but at the same time, you can say that they're, they're closely linked in that passage. That would be the only one out of numerous occurrences in the New Testament. And most of the time, adultery and pornea are distinguished from one another. They appear in lists with one another. Uh, and so in 1 Corinthians 6-9, the adulterers and those who, who practice pornea are two different distinguishing people. Uh, distinguished people. You have in Hebrews 13 that God will judge uh, those who are uh, of uh, pornea and, and adultery, moikea. And so the, the two different terms are distinguished. They're not the same thing. Uh, in a list in Matthew 15, 9, which is, I think, important as well, um, the two are distinguished as two different sins. But what's even more important is that each time that Jesus says the exception clause, the woman commits pornea, he says that this is going to make her an adulteress. And those who get involved with it, adulterers. So the word, and he uses the word moikea. So moikea and the moik stem group obviously refers to adultery. Why in the world would he, would not, why would he just use that for the exception clause? Um, and why wouldn't he then interchange it and say, you're making her a, a prostitute you're making or whatever, but he doesn't say that. And so I don't think pornea means adultery for that reason. And because it's the least attested in the New Testament of the terminology, and it's not how Matthew uses it, that's not a good argument for why you should take it that way.
Uh, Bauer argued that the porn stem tends to be used of women and the moik stem for men. Uh, this is a false statement. Now, it depends on how you read it. I don't know if Bauer is looking more toward classical Greek, because obviously uh, porneia would be used of prostitutes more likely in classical Greek than men. That would that'd be fine. However, again, when you look to the New Testament, this is not true. Porneia is actually used of males and females alike. Um, it may actually be used of men more. I'm not sure. I'd have to look at it again. But And then the moik group is used also of both male and female. You, there's no tendency in the New Testament to use one over the other. And again, I would argue they're different sins. And so they're applied to different people. So porneia does not mean a female adulterer versus moikeia, meaning a male adu- adulterer. And even in the Matthew passage, it's used of the woman when she commits adultery, the moik stem. Whereas the exception clause is the porneia stem. So again, a porn stem. So it's, again, uh, not a good argument. This is just a, it's a false statement. Or it's, it's, an, it's a statement that's meant to obscure uh, the facts because it might be appealing to maybe classical Greek or something, which is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what the way classical Greek may use the term. Uh, his his final argument is one can find in Matthew's community a reason to put an exception uh, for adultery, and he references Joseph putting Mary away, which is a really odd thing because that's that wouldn't have been considered that wouldn't have been described as adultery. We're going to discuss that later on, but it wouldn't that, that's not really adultery. The dissolving of a marriage when a woman goes out and sleeps with another man that's not quite what it is. So that argument I think is kind of odd. Those are the only reason he actually gives to uh, reluctantly, again, adopt adultery. I should say they, it's both Davies and Allison. Um, to adopt the terminology adultery. That's it. It's pretty weak. And I would argue that does it qualify as an optional term, an optional idea in the passage to take it as adultery? Well, if you're saying it's adultery, that you can dissolve a marriage, that means that it's not absolute, that if that what Jesus says before, the absolute statements are now contradicted by Matthew by saying, no, no, there is a reason that you can get divorced and remarried. It also, again, goes against the passage of Matthew 19 that clearly shows the Pharisees have a problem with Jesus, what he said, because they understand him to be saying there is no reason that you can get a divorce. In fact, uh, he would have answered them saying, oh, no, you've misunderstood me. I agree with Moses. You can get a divorce for adultery. I- I'm agreeing with you Pharisees who, who believe that you can get a divorce and remarry based on adultery. No, instead, they start saying, well, why did Moses tell us to, to write a, certific- a certificate of divorce and, and divorce her if we can't get divorced is basically the idea. Well, if they're asking that question, it's because Jesus is saying you can't get a divorce. What God has joined together, no one is to divorce. And so to take it, the ambiguity, and pick the one that contradicts what Jesus had said in Mark, in Luke, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, in Romans 7, what, to, to counter the very passage, what Jesus says in the passage itself, and to counter the response he gets both from the Pharisees and the disciples, where if he was actually saying there was even a single reason for divorce and remarriage, makes no sense at all. They should be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you get a divorce and remarriage for that reason. Makes sense. I guess you agree with Moses, and that's how you take the, uh, 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 the um, sorry, the, uh, the, the phrase, the matter of nakedness. And But that's not how it goes. It's not what he says. And so adultery really is not one of our options. It's not widely attested in the New Testament. It's not a common use of the term or meaning of the term. Uh, and as we're going to see, there's, there's much more viable options. There's no reason in Matthew's community to specifically say this to a Jewish community as though only they would have understood it. Mark's community would have understood adultery. Luke's community would have understood adultery. Why is it only Matthew? Paul's communities would have understood adultery, that you can get a divorce for those reasons. 
But for some reason, it's only Matthew because only Matthew's community understands or has a specific meaning of porneia that perhaps the larger Greek world would not understand. And in a way that, in fact, would not contradict Jesus in what he said or the Apostle Paul in what he said. Because remember, Matthew knows all of this. He's writing later than all of these guys. So adultery is out. There are two more viable options in taking uh, porneia to mean um, something that I think is consistent with what Jesus has said. And both of them are options on the table. Both of them are viable. And I'm not going to argue against either one of them because it may be that the ambiguity is meant to cover both of them. But let's talk about the, the first one. The first one is incest or some illegitimate sexual act in general. So let, like, let's say a homosexual marriage or something. But I think in Matthew, it would be specifically probably said to cover incest. Something, a story that's repeated in every synoptic gospel is Herod marrying uh, Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, John comes up to Herod and he says to, uh, he says to Herod that it is not lawful, referring to Leviticus 18, for you to have your brother's wife. Now, obviously, in the Greco-Roman period, in the Roman Empire, you're not allowed to have somebody else's wife and marry them or whatever. So if Herod married Herodias, it means Philip divorced her. Philip divorced her. She left or she left Philip. By the way, women could also uh, divorce. I think historically she she divorces Philip. Um, She marries Herodias. And John still calls her Philip's wife, your brother's wife. Philip's wife. Um, Interesting that she is still considered Philip's wife. Now, in the Levitical 18 uh, passage, if you have sex with your brother's wife because of the one flesh union idea in Leviticus 18, because it's playing off of Genesis 2, um, if you sleep with that woman, it's like you're sleeping with your brother, which is incestuous. That's why this marital situation would be seen as invalid and therefore you should immediately divorce. You should not be married to your brother. Now, the question is, is, is incest an idea that, that they would have had when they heard the word porneia? And I would argue, yes, both in the second temple period, you have us attested, for instance, it comes up a lot in a pseudepigraphical document called the uh, Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. And and in that, there's a lot about how Reuben slept with his father's wife. Uh, Judah sleeps with, like, Tamar, and and that's basically like sleeping with his sons because she's betrothed to his sons. Um, uh, there's there's things like that going on. Uh, the the uh, marrying of two sisters and all that, the, this sort of thing is considered incest. And because of all that, it's a big issue. And it's brought to be a big issue, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls it's referred to, uh, people committing incest and whatnot. It's seen as a Gentile sin that may actually influence the Jewish community. And so the Jews want to be even further away from the Gentiles. Now you can kind of see why Matthew might mention this in his gospel when there is a Jewish-Gentile conflict with Jews wanting to have nothing to do with Gentiles because they consider them unclean. This is one of those things to where what should Gentiles do if they're married to their sister and they become Christians and they come into the community? Well, the Christian community, I think, would say you need to divorce. This is not a legitimate union. And yet, because Matthew knows, people immediately hearing this would say, that contradicts what Jesus said. Matthew wants to be clear, it's not a legitimate marriage. So in the case of an illegitimate union, like which Pornea describes, then that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a legitimate union of marriage, where the two have actually become one flesh, that God has put them together. God's not putting brother and sister together in a union. Uh, God's not putting like a, a man and his father's wife together in a union. 
And so these things can be broken up. That's what I think. Those who take it this way, it's consistent with the absolute teaching of Jesus that a legitimate marriage cannot be dissolved by any means because God has put it together. Two are one flesh and it cannot be dissolved. But if it's a incestuous marriage or in our day, applying it to if it's a homosexual marriage, we would absolutely say, no, you need to get a divorce. It's not a legitimate union. This makes sense in the context of Matthew. And it may be describing, again, because one could say that Jesus' teaching is contradicting what John said and saying, hey, to, to Herod, you can't have your brother Philip's wife well, what, what was he to do? John seems to be implying that you need to split with Herodias. You need to divorce her. But that would contradict, contradict Jesus, people might say. And so Matthew, being a Jew, is very midrashic in nature. He wants to iron those things out. And so he puts that there as an option. That's a viable option. I tend to take that option. I think that's true. But the other option is also equally valid. And we come to then the third option of taking the ambiguous term porneia, and that is probably the most common attested uh, meaning of the word is prostitution. Uh, but prostitution in terms of uh, a woman who is betrothed having sex with someone else before she is, has consummated that marriage. And so um, we see that this term back in the Septuagint in Deuteronomy 22 it's used of a woman who is found out. Now, it's found out on her wedding night. Once the man sleeps with her, uh, she does not bleed, and therefore he thinks that she's not a virgin, and he makes an ac accusation against her. And if it's found out that she's not actually a virgin, she's stoned to death for that after the consummation. But what, is, what describes her activity there is not the word moikeia, like adultery, but actually it's ekpornuo, in the Septuagint, the Septuagint likes to put those prepositions on the front. It's actually pornuo, which is the, um, the verbal form of porneia. So that would be a case of porneia. That is the woman having sex before the betrothal period is over. Now, um, this is attested in, in many different places in the New Testament in terms of porneia, talking about prostitution, it does mean prostitution, but it's telling the woman, the girl, that she's actually, she's become a prostitute. Because porneia really describes uh, not, not the exchange of money. That's not the way the Bible views prostitution. Prostitution is basically this. It's the exchange of sexual favor or doing any sort of, sort of physical activity that's sexual toward a person in exchange for anything other than a marriage covenant. Anything other than a marriage covenant, and within a marriage covenant, uh, the woman is exchanging sexual favors or something for that. It could be just, you know, emotional things that she needs, and she'd be considered a whore, a prostitute. Uh, it could be money. Uh, it could be shelter. It, it, it could be just pleasure itself that she's doing it. But she's considered a prostitute because she's exchanging it for anything else besides a marriage covenant and within a marriage covenant. So it's very important. Interesting. I mean, as a side note, you can apply that to, you know, what happens? What, what are we really doing when we send our daughters away to college or, or all that sort of thing? That's something to maybe think about because prostitution means the reason why the woman's doing that is because she doesn't have a head, a federal head over her. And so uh, one of the things in Deuteronomy 22 is that the woman has played the prostitute. She's been a prostitute in her father's house. So her father, she was to acknowledge, had authority over her sexuality, meaning she was not to give it to anyone but her husband. He would trade it off. He, he would give her to her husband then and allow her to give her virginity to her husband. But, uh, but she was not to do that herself. She acted as though she had no federal head. She had no father. Uh, an adulteress acts like as though she has no husband, which is why it's an ironic term used of an adulteress, because she's act actually acting like she doesn't have a head. She's just having sex with multiple people, and Israel's called a prostitute for that reason, both an adulteress and a prostitute. doesn't mean it means adultery. It just It's referring to an adulteress because of that reason. But why would Matthew be talking about it? What is Matthew as a Jew? Again, because he's doing Midrash. He's trying to iron things out that might be seen as contradictions 
between what Jesus is saying and something that is known by the community and something that might get in the way. Maybe Gentiles will use it against the Jews and say how unrighteous the Jews are, or the Jews might use it against the Gentiles and say how unrighteous they are. So he's trying to iron those out. Well, one of the objections to this is by saying, well, that's during the betrothal period, though, they're not really married. I mean, that's just like being engaged in our day, right? Um, no. So this is a misunderstanding. This is the problem with trying to read a text in a, a modern context. Because to us, an engagement is an engagement. You're not married to the person until you have a wedding. That's not true in the Bible, um, even as early back in the Torah and the law, that if you have someone sleep with some, someone's, uh, I, w- I don't want to say fiance, wife who's betrothed, the consummation hasn't happened yet, that guy needs to die for it. If he rapes her, that guy dies. Now, if a woman is not betrothed to a man and a man sleeps with her, guess what? There's no death. You know what the penalty is? They just have to get married. They're just supposed to get married because they slept with one another. Now, of course, it needs to be with the approval of the father. He can also say no, and then the man has to pay him uh, some sort of uh, fee for having taken the virginity of his daughter without permission. And the man can actually say, no, you can't get married. Um, But I want you to notice something. This is important because something appears in Matthew that doesn't appear elsewhere and might create conflict in people's minds between what Jesus teaches and uh, and what appears earlier in Matthew. And so Matthew is the only one who mentions this story. In Matthew chapter 1, something is mentioned with the Moses, sorry, Moses, Joseph and Mary story that is not mentioned in any other gospel. And I will get there in a moment. All right, in Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. While his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he did not want to disgrace her, he intended to, do, to uh, put her away privately. Now, that's how you typically hear this translated, right? I want you to notice Joseph, uh, her husband-to-be. Let's go to the Greek real quick. And we're in 119. Let's look what it actually says. But Joseph, her husband, not husband-to-be, her husband. Now, you might say, well, Nair just means man, so it could be her man. But here's the principle in, uh, in Greek. Uh, when you've got a possessive on uh, uh, the words for man or woman, it means uh, husband or wife. And so it's her man. I mean, we still use that terminology today, like, you know, this is my man or this is my woman or whatever. And it's for referring, well, mostly, I mean, you know, especially in this context, though, in a, in a context where you'd be married uh, for that reason, uh, it means husband and wife. So Joseph is actually her husband. But I want you to notice in verse 18, prin a sunelthane uh, autus, before they had come together. So before there was consummation, during the betrothal period, Joseph is still considered her husband. Then the common uh, phrase that is uh, translated put away, that he put away, he quietly put her away, is really kind of obscure. You know what that word is in Matthew? Let's go down. Let's look at it. Look at this. Apolusai. That's apoluo. Guess what that is? That's the word that Matthew uses both in chapter 5 and in 19 for the word divorce. That is Matthew's word for divorce. So Joseph is her husband, and he decides to divorce her. And they're betrothed. And her being found with child, uh, and him thinking that she has slept with someone else during the betrothal period, would be described not with moikeia, 
but with porneia, because that's the way it's described in Deuteronomy 22. It's, she's, she's done pornuo. She's, she's porneia is, is what she's practiced. And so it's very easy then to see what Matthew is saying, the exception clause he's talking about, is that you are okay in divorcing your wife in the betrothal period if she is in fact found with a case of porneia. That is, she's had sex before the consummation has taken place. Uh, in that betrothal period, maybe she had sex before that, who knows, but it's found out that she's not a virgin and you didn't know she wasn't a virgin. And that's why it says being a righteous man, he doesn't want to marry someone who's now been connected to someone else, so he decides to divorce her quietly because he, he, also, he also doesn't want to shame her publicly. So he divorces her quietly. And then, of course, the angel intervenes and tells them, no, you've got it wrong. She's not been with anyone else. Now, this is important because you might have had people, you might have had Gentiles who wanted to hit back at Jews and say, yeah, well, you guys aren't, uh, you guys aren't too clean yourself because, look, even the, the father of Jesus then violated what Jesus says. You're not to, to divorce what God has put together. You're not to, uh, if, you, if you divorce a woman and you marry another, you're committing adultery. So Joseph might have been committing adultery. How is he righteous? And all these questions might come up. But Matthew wants to make sure, no, 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 no. Jesus is talking about after the consummation in a legitimate marriage, that cannot be dissolved in the contract, in the, in the covenant of marriage. Uh, two have been bound together, and, and it cannot be dissolved from that point in a legitimate union. A legitimate sexual union, not an incestuous one, but in a legitimate one. So what is the ambiguity there for? I think it's there to cover maybe both of these. Maybe both uh, Herod's situation so that Jesus is not contradicting John. And the situation of Joseph and Mary, so that it's not contradicting that as, as well. There's no reason for the exception clause as adultery to be here at all. It makes no sense in Matthew. It has nothing to do with why Matthew is writing. It has no conflict between the Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles believe that you should actually get a divorce for adultery. Both of them believe that. So there's, there's no point in putting it here when it, and not putting it elsewhere. I mean, there's no reason for Matthew to include it. It makes no sense. And so one of the two options you have are either taking pornea to mean uh, an illegitimate sexual union like incest or even today like homosexuality. We would then tell people you get divorced uh, and you can get remarried because your, your union originally was not legitimate. Or... If you find out before the consummation that a woman has slept with someone else and therefore committed pornea, uh, you're fine in breaking the covenant. The, the, you can go ahead and marry another. You've not, one, you've not consummated it, but the contract is invalid because it was made on false pretenses, right? And there was no consummation, so that's it. We would say the same today. I mean, our betrothal period isn't the same thing. I mean, if you want to think of their betrothal period, what you really need to see it as is that you're married at the point of betrothal, and that's when your wedding ceremony begins. And the ceremony ends at consummation, whenever that might be. But you're married at that point. That's why he's her husband, she's his wife, and if he's going to uh, uh, sep uh, no longer fulfill that covenant... It has to be a divorce. He has to divorce her at this point. Um, and so those are your two options for, for pornea. Those don't conflict. They meet the criteria of not conflicting with what Jesus has said and the reaction that he gets from the Pharisees and the disciples and the statements of Jesus of what he says in Matthew itself, that is, uh, what God has put together, let no man separate. No man is to separate. It's actually a command there, it, not necessarily just, it's not an encouragement. Oh, please don't separate them. It's, it's saying no one is to separate. No human being is to do it. And so those are the two options that we have. That is what should guide your hermeneutic. That is the clear statements that Jesus makes absolute statements that you are not to get a divorce, you are not to get remarried, and therefore, whatever Matthew's exception is, it has to fit those. And lo and behold, the two that fit it best, fit it best because they're the most widely used in the New Testament. 
um, again, like in the the uh, Jer- the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, um, it references the Holiness Code, Leviticus 17 and 18, and describes pornea. It refers to pornea or refers to Leviticus 18 as pornea. So there's that illegitimate unions in Leviticus 18, lots of incest being talked about in Leviticus 18, homosexuality, bestiality, all that stuff. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, you have a man who has his father's wife. Most likely his father divorced his wife. His son then married her. Uh, that's probably what has his father's wife actually means, not just shacked up with her, but actually married her. And Paul says, no, not even the pagans usually don't even do that. Usually the pagans are like, you know, brother and sister. Usually you don't have the the other way around. And so he hands the man over to Satan, of course, uh, for the incest. And that's described as pornea. But then you have the other, of course, that's prostitution. And uh, specifically in Matthew, this idea between Joseph and Mary, uh, that would have been called into question that the Old Testament would have called pornea had Mary actually been guilty of it. So you have those two options that make the most sense in the context of Matthew, most widely attested. There, there's actually two situations in Matthew that connect to those ideas. Matthew distinguishes adultery and pornea, moikea and pornea. So they're not the same thing in his mind. And so to take it as adultery is just, I think, uh, bad hermeneutics. And the only reason people do it is because they want it to be true. That's it. It's not the most logical one to take. It's not the most viable one. Uh, It's not the most likely at all. Uh, It's taken because it allows for an out. And then from it, then you have people start speculating, well, what is adultery really? I mean, isn't it kind of abandonment as well? Emotional abandonment? And, and that's what you have the reformers do. And then that's what you have people after the reformers do. And then they expand it from adultery to numerous things. Um, in the end, this is a hermeneutical issue. It's an exegesis issue. Now, Uh, The church typically took it as adultery because they didn't understand this. The church is largely Greek and Gentile. They don't understand this concept. In fact, one of the the arguments of Davies and Allison is that, well, the fathers didn't understand it as as either incest or or the other. Well, yeah, the fathers wouldn't have understood it that way. They're not a Second Temple Jewish context. That's why Matthew speaks it to them. And then Mark and Luke don't use the exception clause because Gentiles wouldn't have understood it. Um, but they take it as adultery, but I want you to notice what they do. They're still trying to be consistent with Jesus's absolute statement. They're just putting the absolute statement on remarriage rather than divorce. So they're saying that there's no divorce except for adultery. And this is the way scholars like Wenham and Heth take it. Uh, no divorce except for adultery, but no remarriage at all. And even Davies and Allison say you can't Figure it out from the grammar. There's nothing to say. It may it may allow for remarriage. It may not. They don't know. Um, Wenham and, and Heth would say, no, it doesn't. It's not a part of it. It goes with just the divorce part, which is why it's split in the grammar. You have uh, he who divorces his wife, except in the case of pornea. And then you have Anna marries another as a separate thing. So uh, regardless of, of what the divorce is for, if he remarries, he's committed adultery or she's committed adultery, whoever's doing the divorcing. Um, But the reason why I don't think it's a viable option is not because it doesn't fit uh, the absolute context of the remarriage idea, but it doesn't really fit with what Jesus says and the dialogue in Matthew 19. So let's go to Matthew 19 real quick. So in Matthew 19, you have this dialogue come about. We've talked about this already. I'm not going to go through the whole passage because we kind of already did that. But you you have the dialogue uh, ensue to where the Pharisees come and they want to test Jesus. And they then ask him, you know, can a man divorce? uh, Is there any reason a man can divorce or is there, can a man divorce for any reason? Whatever way you want to take it. Um, They're expecting some reason for divorce, which then will allow them to remarry. Jesus says instead, uh, actually, you know, have you not read what God 
put together, uh, he, put, he made the male and female to become one flesh, what God put together, no one is to, to divorce. So there's the statement, no one is to divorce. No human is to divorce what God has put together, meaning no divorce. They then react with the statement, well, whoa, 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 why did Moses tell us that we could get a divorce, basically, then? He, he told us we just have to give her a certificate. And he doesn't say, oh, because he was talking about adultery. No. He says, no, uh, you don't get it. Moses wrote that for you because you were hard-hearted. Uh, you were going to do unjust things, and he needed to make a provision for the woman, which is really what Deuteronomy 24 is about. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Deuteronomy 24. But that's not what God intended. God intended that the two become one flesh, and no human is to actually say it's separated, because it isn't. And therefore, uh, when he's talking to the disciples, therefore it's very clear, or, or, and to, to all of them actually uh, in 19, um, it's very clear then that whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commit, except for the, in the case of Pornea, commits adultery. So in the case of Pornea is not contradicting what he just said, that there was no reason to get a divorce, that they can't get a divorce. And so that's very important to understand. That's why I think that the adultery option is not really a good option because it contradicts the passage. It says there is a reason to legitimately divorce. That, that makes no sense in their reactions. The disciples' reactions make no sense. And so ultimately then what we end up with is really just two options for Pornea. And that is uh, either the woman has had sex before the consummation and it's okay to break the contract and marry someone else. Or in the case of something like an incestuous union and illegitimately uh, and by a little illegitimate union, I mean it's it's something that goes against procreation, uh, some union that is contrary to procreation. That's what Leviticus eighteen is really about. So incestuous unions, obviously you can't marry an animal. Um, homosexual unions, all that sort of thing. Those are illegitimate unions, and therefore the two have not become one flesh in an illegitimate union such as those. I do think, though, that Matthew specifically has in mind incest because he's got the case of Herod and Herodias uh, in his mind. Again, this is something repeated in all the synoptic gospels, which is a rare thing to actually have. Um, But clearly it was on the mind showing that Herod had come into the influence of the Greeks in their, what what Jews typically thought was a, a sin of the Greeks, which was incest. So those are really your options. Adultery really isn't one. So you can pick either one of those. I say I think it is ambiguous to where maybe it is trying to cover both. Uh, We would agree with both. Um, I wouldn't necessarily agree that it's talking about after the consummation. I don't think it's a Deuteronomy 22 situation to where he finds out and then the woman should be stoned because Jesus isn't talking about the civil law here. He's talking about what his people should be doing morally. Because obviously the civil law under the Romans allows you to divorce all you want for any reason. Uh, He's really talking about what his people, his kingdom people now, how they need to see their marriages, how they need to treat people within the covenant community, especially their spouses, and understand in the context that they are to forgive their spouses. Which is why, by the way, I want to end this by saying, you know what passage precedes Matthew 19? Matthew 18. Do you know what Matthew 18 is all about? Matthew 18 is all about when someone sins and they've asked for forgiveness and you don't forgive them. Um, There's a parable said at the end of Matthew 18. And at the end of the parable, the moral of the parable is that if you don't forgive your brother, your fellow Christian from your heart, that is truly forgive them, then your father in heaven will not forgive you either. And suddenly, on the heels of that, a conversation about divorce and remarriage. Why do you think Matthew put those two together? Why do you think the gospel writers have them together? It's because no Christians at all are ever, ever to divorce. Because divorce is unforgiveness. You are either to forgive when the person repents, or if the person doesn't repent, what are you supposed to do? 
throughout Matthew, from chapter 5 on, what is your goal? Reconciliation. Not further departure, not throwing the person away further, not, not leaving and trying to get rid of the person. It is reconciliation. You may have to take other people with you. You may have to get counseling. You may have to do church discipline. Whatever it may be, you're seeking reconciliation so that when you come to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he's real clear that the man is not to divorce his wife. That's a command from the Lord, he says. The woman is not to divorce her husband. That's a command from the Lord. But if for some reason some divorce has taken place because you guys didn't obey it for some reason, or, or maybe, again, in extenuated circumstances, a separation was necessary for some reason, then the goal is either you remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. But the unmarried part is in the hope of reconciliation to your spouse. That's a very important point. We as Christians are forgiving people and we're looking to reconcile. And of course, that's even going to uh, trickle down to what Paul says about whether or not you even try to divorce an unbeliever, even though he says that the Lord isn't really addressing that here. It's going to apply to it in 1 Corinthians 7. And we'll talk about that more when we, we discuss it next week. So that's what I want you to get, though, in terms of this. I want you to understand again that you interpret the ambiguity in the context of the clear. You don't take an ambiguous term and say, well, I can, it can mean adultery. And since I like that one the best, I'll go with that one because that gives me the greatest amount of freedom. And yeah, it kind of contradicts some things that Jesus said there in the context. And it contradicts the other writers and the apostle and all that sort of thing. But, you know, we'll try to work it out and mold it out in a way to where it doesn't contradict. I mean, ultimately, it's, just, it's the one I like the best. And yeah, sure, the term is not really attested as well as the other terms. But again, that's not why I'm choosing it, right? Um, again, that's why I said at the get-go, this whole study that you have to approach the scripture in a teachable manner saying, I want to know what is good and true so I can glorify you in it, Lord, whatever it may be, whatever it takes from me, whatever sacrifices I have to make, whatever you desire, that's what I want to do. If you're going to approach it that way, then guess what? You don't go with the term that's less likely. You go with one of the two terms or maybe both the terms that are the most likely, that fit the context, that have issues, that address issues in the very text of Matthew, that don't contradict all the other teaching of the New Testament. But if you're not teachable and you're just trying to get what you want to hear, then you're looking for an ear tickle, then yeah, go with the most uh, unlikely meaning because it gives you the most freedom and then you can just argue and do what you want. In the end, the man who does what he wants is Lord of himself. That's really what Matthew's trying to get at, by the way, as he goes through his gospel. That's why he's bringing up all these hard things. The very next thing he's going to mention is the rich young ruler who is unwilling to give up his life to follow Christ. He'll obey all those commandments. He'll be a good old Christian in every other way, but he doesn't want to actually uh, have a, some, some, something that is detrimental to his life, like giving up his money, his security. In the same way, you may not want to give up a relationship. You are the rich young ruler then. You are the one who should just bow your head sadly and walk away because you've decided, I'm going to be my own Lord I don't want Christ as Lord. It costs too much. Why do you think Jesus says, if anyone's going to follow me, he's got to pick up his cross and die with me? If you wish to find your life in Christ, do you think you're going to establish it and have your lovely little house with a picket fence and all that you desire and that's what you're going to have in Christ? You're misunderstood. You've misunderstood Christ. He's arguing that, no, the person who wants to find his life must lose it. It's he who loses his life that finds it in Christ. If you're willing to lose your life, then come to these texts and stop mangling the language. Stop mangling context. Stop putting other contexts on it to change it. 
Stop fiddling around with ambiguous terms and making those the uh, context for which you understand the clear. Stop jumbling up your hermeneutics because you want to hear what you want to hear. Come to the scripture in humility and say, okay, this is what the Lord requires of me. This is really hard. This goes completely against not only our cultural context, but our religious cultural context. It goes against the modern church's teaching, which is largely influenced by the Reformation and the Enlightenment. But who cares? Because I'm pretty sure when you prayed a prayer, your first prayer to Jesus, repenting of your sin and believing the gospel, you weren't really being baptized into the Reformed understanding of marriage. You weren't being adopted into uh, sonship under the enlightenment. You were saying, I am no longer going to live to myself. I am going to die to myself and become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God. Because where else are there words of eternal life? He alone has the message of eternal life. In him alone is life. And if you understand that, you should be willing to give up something that's a counterfeit life. You'll find no peace, no shalom in doing what you want and being your own Lord. But I promise you, as frightening as this may seem to you, to give up what you find security in and what you think you're going to have fulfillment in will in the end bring the greatest amount of peace and shalom in Christ. So I, I urge you today, when you are interpreting these passages, don't play around with them. Think about the things we've discussed and don't interpret the clear in light of the ambiguous. Go with the options that make most sense in the context. Go with the options of the ambiguous that don't contradict the rest of the clear. And I think you'll do well. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 7. And of course, it's, we're going to have the same type of things done in 1 Corinthians 7, where the ambiguities are, are meant to kind of go against the clear teachings in order to make more exceptions for divorce and remarriage. And I hope that you then can see that that, that type of methodology is fallacious. Um, instead, let us come to God in prayer and uh, thank him for helping us understand these things. Father, again, we come to you and seek to glorify you because we have given our lives to Christ. Uh, we no longer live for ourselves. We have died on a cross with him. And life we now live, we live for the Son of God who loved us and died for us. Father, I pray that we remember this as we approach these passages and not forget that our life is not in marriage. Our life is not found in money. Our life is not found in anything in this life. It's not in a relationship. You have made us for yourself. And we are restless until we find rest in you. And that is true when Augustine said it. It is true today. It will remain true. And no matter how we deceive ourselves in thinking otherwise, we prove it true. Because when we go our own way, and every time we have gone our own way, all we've done is get into a larger mess and feel more empty, less fulfilled, and like something is wrong, when in fact it is. We chose the wrong path. We got on the wrong train because we just didn't trust you. And we wanted to somehow smooth it out like we weren't really rebelling against you because we could make it all work out with scripture. If we just play with that word and that word, if we just put this other context over the context that we have in the Bible, we can just change what's said. And therefore, we'll have no conflict between following you and doing what we want. Lord, convict us today. Convict us. Renew our commitment to you. Renew our faith. Renew our repentance to follow you and not ourselves. Humble us. Help us understand that we don't know the right way. But you do. And you're seeking 
the best way to glorify yourself and to conform us to the image of your son. Oh Lord, let that be our goal as well today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.